Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Clam comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's September 25th, 2004, an unusually humid day in Beijing, and Yoji Komi, a Japanese newspaper journalist, stands in the first floor lobby of Beijing Capital International Airport, surrounded by a gaggle of newspaper, radio, and television reporters. Komi is rail thin, with studious glasses. As crews set up their TV cameras and microphones, he anxiously clutches his voice recorder and a reporter's notebook. The group is waiting for a North Korean ministry official to walk through the terminal. He's arriving today, allegedly for economic talks. Komi scans a sea of faces floating through the terminal, looking for any sign of the deputy director general. But no luck. Instead, a TV reporter nudges him and points at a man who just walked past, remarking how similar he looks to Kim Jong-nam. It, it can't be Jong-nam himself, can it? This, again, was 2004, three years after the Tokyo Disneyland incident. Nobody outside of North Korea had seen nor heard much from Kim Jong-nam since. Komi had to get a better look. The man in question is alone, pudgy but cleanly shaven, carrying a small handbag. Komi briskly walks toward the man, intercepting his path. He clicks his voice recorder on, and then he blurts it out. Are you Mr. Kim Jong-nam? Almost without hesitation, the man turns, stares Komi in the eye, and says, That is right. Soon, a small crowd of journalists is following the mysterious man who just claimed to be Kim Jong-nam. They pelt him with questions. Why is he here? Is his father angry with him? Where is he going? Is he really traveling alone? 
What do you do? One of them asks. Kim Jong-nam dismisses the question with a wave of his hand, saying, <laughs> I can't comment. He picks up the pace, trying to escape. Near the terminal exit, a group of Chinese men approach the pool of journalists. Komi looks them up and down and realizes they're bodyguards of some type. They probably came to escort the North Korean prince to his taxi. The journalists move outside to the sidewalk, where a carousel of cars await. They badger Cheng Nam with more questions. He bats them away. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. A taxi pulls up, and Kim Jong Nam flings the door open. Komi's instincts kick in. He reaches into his pocket, pulls out a business card, and stretches it toward the door. About five other journalists do the same. Cheng Nam smiles, gently takes the cards, and says, "I will contact you when I get to Beijing." The door closes. And the taxi rolls off. Days would pass, then weeks, and months, but Komi heard nothing from the dear leader's elusive son. By winter, Komi had practically forgotten what happened in the Beijing airport. He's a journalist. People promise to return his messages all the time and then don't. It doesn't mean anything. And then, in early December, 2004, Komi turns on his computer and notices an unusual message written in Hangul, the Korean writing system. The title says, "Greetings." Komi opens the message. It begins, "Hello, this is Kim Jong Nam." I'm Eden Lee. In this episode, the story of the revealing friendship between a Japanese journalist and Kim Jong Nam, and how, when his baby brother took power, it changed everything. The leader of North Korea churns out officials because they prove to be disloyal. There's also potential security implications when it comes to Kim Jong Un's own life. All totalitarian dictators, by their nature, are paranoid. They wake up every morning thinking, "Is this going to be my last day?" This is Big Brother. In the early 2000s, the occasional Kim Jong Nam sighting was the closest the media could get to the Kim Dynasty. He was like a socialist Sasquatch. A reclusive creature that lumbered unannounced through airport terminals or city sidewalks, and when journalists did spot him, like this airport encounter in 2009, they usually couldn't get much out of him. So where are you going now? I cannot tell you because you will follow me. Yes, because everybody loves you. <laughs> the rare sighting would drive the world of political gossip into a tailspin. And the more Kim Jong Nam was seen, the more speculation there was about his activities for the regime. And the more speculation, the murkier the truth became. It's impossible to say with certainty what exactly Kim Jong Nam was doing all that time. Was he still working for his father, or was he living an endless vacation in Macau? Was he banished from his homeland, or had he simply opted for a more capitalistic lifestyle? It's unclear, but here's what we do know: 
Kim Jong-nam may have started living in a villa outside Beijing, protected behind the walls of a gated community as early as 1995. We also know that, around that time, Jong-nam had a son named Kim Hans-hol. We also know that parenthood didn't stop him from his jet-setting playboy ways. Journalists and intelligence officials kept tabs on Kim Jong-nam's movements, thanks to the testimony of girls working red-light districts across Asia, who took note of a portly high roller who devoured sashimi, drained bottles of Hennessy, and paid good money to spend time with his favorite women. Intelligence officials verified that this heavy spender was Kim Jong-nam, thanks to two tattoos on his back, one of a tiger, another of a koi fish, in the garish style preferred by the Japanese mafia. Here's Anna Fifield. We do know that he had some admiration for or loose ties with the Yakuza in Japan and the Chinese triads. Uh, He did have this very elaborate koi fish tattoo, uh, which is something often associated with triads and Yakuza in Asia. So suggestions, but no smoking gun to say that he was deeply embedded in the criminal underworld. That's just one of many rumors. People in Macau claimed to see Kim Jong-nam wasting his days and nights drinking and gambling. Others speculated that he was still doing work for the regime, possibly laundering money. Others claimed that he had been completely cut off. According to Fifield's book, word circulated that Kim Jong-nam's only link to the regime was long, alcohol-fueled phone calls he routinely had with his aunt, Kim Jong-il's sister. Some suggest he was receiving an allowance from her husband and his uncle, Chang Song-tek. Kim Jong-nam was extremely close to his uncle, Jang Song-tek. So he was acting as an uncle, a father figure, very close and, and advocating for Kim Jong-nam and his interests. Uh, and that bond stayed over time as Kim Jong-nam grew up. If true, Chang Sung-tek might have been Kim Jong-nam's last saving grace in the eyes of the regime. Tech was a mover and shaker, a charismatic statesman in charge of developing North Korea's financial dealings with China. He flew around the globe, buying up resources for the country's development projects, from coal mines to construction sites. Some like to call him the Kim Jong-il who goes abroad. And like Kim Jong-nam, he was an advocate for modernizing North Korea. They both were proponents of opening up, reforming or improving, in North Korean words, uh, the economy and following a more Chinese path of economic liberalization without political change. The difference was... Chang Song-tek was clearly still in Kim Jong-il's inner circle. He was the dear leader's right-hand man. Kim Jong-nam, by all appearances, was not. None of this information was new to a journalist like Yoji Gomi. He had been covering North Korea's palace dramas for years. And when he first saw that message from Kim Jong-nam reach his inbox... He was skeptical that it was actually the exiled prince reaching out to him. Kumi wanted to confirm the man's identity. So he went for it and replied, Would it be possible to meet and talk? That same day, Kim Jong-nam replied with two emails. 
both answers dodge the question. I am always hard at work for my country. I apologize for not being able to answer more. Wishing you the best of health. Have a nice weekend. Respectfully, Kim Jong-nam. It wasn't much, but Komi's heart raced. This could become the scoop of a lifetime. The fact that a member of North Korean royalty had contacted the media, brief as it was, was news in and of itself. And the fact Jong-nam suggested he was still working for the regime, but in Macau, begged a question. What was he doing? Was he a spy? Was he laundering money? Was he acting as some sort of liaison with the Chinese, trying to become like his uncle, Chang Song-tek? So Komi published a story in the Tokyo Shimbun newspaper. A few days later, when Kim Jong-nam learned Komi had published an article about his short email messages, he wrote again, chiding the journalist for not verifying his identity. Are you writing up and sending in stories without confirming that I'm in fact Kim Jong-nam? Is that what you do? But Komi could tell that there was a smirk lurking behind the message. I don't mind your writing stories based on our communications at all. Komi's mind began to whirl. Here was a man who knew the ins and outs of one of the most secretive societies on the planet. The journalist began cooking up ways to entice his source into a face-to-face meeting. Other journalists receiving Kim Jong-nam's messages weren't as enthusiastic. Many were doubting his identity. And Kim Jong-nam wasn't happy about it. One day, Komi opened his inbox and found a testy email. I continue to sense there are strong doubts and skepticism about my true identity. Based on this, I must tell you that I will terminate all communications with reporters as of today. Wishing you a healthy and fruitful year end and new year. Respectfully, self-proclaimed Kim Jong-nam, or a person presumed to be Kim Jong-nam. Komi was crestfallen. After two days of feverish emailing, the biggest scoop of his career had collapsed. His inbox went silent. Six years passed. And then on October 22nd, 2010. Hello, this is Kim Jong-nam. I hear that you are very knowledgeable about North Korea, and I am willing to answer any questions you might have. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss. 
host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The timing of Kim Jong-nam's email in 2010 was telling. One month earlier, his father had publicly announced that his younger half-brother, the 26-year-old Kim Jong-un, would be the successor. Did Kim Jong-nam reach out to Komi because he was jealous? Was he feeling spurned by his father? Had their relationship broken down? Was Kim Jong-nam scared? Komi had to know. Any expert will tell you, the Kim inner circle can be a terrifying place during a change of leadership. The country has a history of squashing any and all competition when a new leader is installed. Here's Michael Madden. It goes all the way back to the 40s. It goes all the way back to the 40s when the Soviets installed Kim Jong-un's grandfather, Kim Il-sung, into office. After Kim Il-sung was made chairman, Splinter groups of pro-Soviet and pro-China communists banded together to replace him, arguing that Kim had failed to follow the Leninist principle of collective leadership. Like any good guerrilla leader, Kim Il-sung enlisted his supporters to arrest those who questioned him. And then... He starts to eliminate, he starts to eliminate people very, very early on in the regime, as the regime forms. Ten years later, it would happen again. A band of Kim Il-sung's guerrilla comrades advocated for economic change and attempted to install a new leader named Pak kum Chol. Kim Il-sung was familiar with his competitor. The two men had fought side by side against the Japanese. They were even friends. But that meant nothing. When Pak threatened the supreme leader's power, he and all of his supporters were purged. Anyone associated with the subversive character would either be dismissed from their posts or exterminated altogether. And this has become something of a tradition ever since. It's just the nature of, it's just the, nature of the North Korean political culture that the leader of North Korea churns out officials because they prove to be disloyal or that they prove they might form alternative power centers and take all of the glory and attention away from the leader. Kim Jong-il would make similar changes when he was installed. 
and so too it was expected with Kim Jong Un. Forget quaint notions of filial piety. Forget the rhetoric of chuche. Forget the propaganda of the personality cult. The Kim regime is driven largely by one emotion and one emotion alone: paranoia. Totalitarian dictators, by their nature, are paranoid. They wake up every morning thinking, "Is this going to be my last day?" Kim Il Sung learned this lesson early, from the days his uncle was betrayed by a family friend, and from the factions of ex-friends who tried to overturn his rule in the 1950s. The resulting paranoia would become the foundation of North Korea's institutions, including its brutal prison camps. Or Kwaliso, many individuals would say that the camps have basically come about as a result of having to deal with the population that was considered hostile to the regime. That again is Dr. Sandra Fahey. She's the author of the book "Dying for Rights," which investigates North Korea's human rights abuses. As she explains, originally. North Korea's prison camps were built to detain Japanese sympathizers and any anti-Kim sentiment. When Korea was divided, and when the Soviet Union installed Kim Il Sung, the North Koreans needed to make sure that within the community, within the country, there weren't going to be individuals who would question Kim Il Sung. So those individuals had to be basically taken away. But the list of potential offenses. Would quickly expand. Today, anybody can be sent to a hard labor camp for committing minor crimes, such as gossiping or, like one poor journalist found out, misspelling the supreme leader's name. For North Korea, the threat of a prison camp is a powerful tool for scaring the populace into compliance, and a way to save money with slave labor. They wanted to make use of these individuals, so they make them work, and that's why they didn't just completely exterminate them. In the camps, political prisoners spend hours a day mining for coal, gold, or iron. Others are routinely sent to re-education camps for brainwashing, or, as Dr. Fahey calls it, an ideological booster shot. Locals have a name for this kind of punishment. It's called being sent to the mountains. That's a heartbreaking detail of life in North Korea. If you are sent to prison in North Korea, you enter a whole different realm of human experience. Prison is not the punishment. Prison is the place where more punishment happens. Physical torture, sexual abuse, forced starvation—those are just a few of the things waiting for those in the North Korean prison camps. The conditions are frankly unspeakable. About forty percent of all prisoners die from malnutrition. Reports claim that people survive off of literal crumbs, sometimes fighting over pucks of cow dung, hoping to find a kernel of corn. And it's the fate of anybody who dares to threaten the line of succession or criticize the regime. And that, that. Was the risk Kim Jong Nam was taking when he started talking to a journalist? Because the camps, they don't discriminate. Even Kim Jong Nam's uncle, the beloved Chang Sung Tae, the number two leader in the whole country, 
had been sent to a re-education camp before. If it happened to him, it could happen to anybody, including Kim Jong-nam. But that didn't stop him. In the weeks after his little brother was named successor, Kim Jong-nam began an intense digital friendship with Yoji Komi. The two would share more than 150 emails. Take your time to get your questions ready and email them to me. I'll respond as sincerely as I can. An off-the-record conversation might be possible, provided that you keep your word. Six years since their last email, Kim Jong-nam no longer seemed worried about offending the regime. The recent succession announcement apparently had provoked him, and the disdain spilled into his emails. There has been no precedent for a third-generation dynasty, except during the feudal dynasty period. People agree to the fact that the third-generation dynasty does not comply with socialism either. I also believe that our father who was more negative about third-generation dynasty than anybody else, was compelled to carry out the dynastic succession due to strong internal factors. Where North Korean people are used to believing and following only the so-called Pekdu bloodline, I personally assume that some troublesome situations were expected if a successor outside the bloodline were to appear. The Pekdu bloodline. As Kim Jong-nam saw it, the myth embraced by his grandfather, which had helped solidify the family's rule, had also trapped them. In a truly communist system, there would be collective leadership. But for the past 60 years, the state has sold the North Korean people on the lie that the true leader must have pure blood. And now, they were boxed in. I think North Korea determined that even if it were to move toward a collective leadership system in the future, unless the leaders appointed from the Pekdu bloodline, it would not be able to maintain the power elite. And so it carried out the third generation following the Pekdu bloodline in consideration of North Korea's internal uniqueness. I am opposed to a third generation dynasty. However, I said that if there was a need to push forward the third-generation dynasty for the sake of the internal stability of North Korea, we must comply with it. This last part made Komi's ears perk up. Kim Jong-nam kept vaguely mentioning internal stability and internal factors. Komi had wanted to know what exactly those internal factors were. Kim Jong-nam did not hold back. This is my personal view, but when I try to think about how many of the top officials who assist my father and the successor in North Korea sincerely care about the livelihood of the North Korean people, I regret to say there are not that many in reality. There are treacherous attendants who devote themselves to toadyism in order to survive, and those who solely pursue their own comfort and form barriers between the people and the leader by telling lies about state affairs. I hope such people will be removed from around my father and the successor. I definitely believe they will not be beneficial for the development of North Korea and for the future of the successor. In other words, Kim Jong-nam knew that his father was surrounded by sycophants and suck-ups 
people who are more interested in their own safety and security than that of regular people. Gumi asked Jungnam if he ever got to talk to his father about these problems. Jungnam's reply, all the time. I tell him about what I think, frankly, without any rehearsed script. In the past, I've directly spoken to him about the concerns of the international community about the nuclear tests and missile launching tests. Reading these messages, it was clear to Komi that Kim Jong-nam was not in exile at all, but was in fact one of the few people close to the supreme leader and one of the few people who was actually brave enough to tell him the truth. The distance gave him some protection, some latitude, to tell his father what he didn't want to hear. The distance also solidified his feelings that North Korea had to change. According to my common sense, reform and liberalization are considered to be essential for attaining economic development. While staying in China for many years, I have directly witnessed and experienced how China achieved development. All of these statements... These were the types of things that got people sent to the mountains for a long, long time. But Kim Jong-nam knew that if anybody had the privilege to speak out, it was him, the son of the dear leader. His stepmother might try to ruin him, maybe even his little brother, but his father? Never. Still, Kim Jong-nam had to tread carefully. He weighed his words he reiterated that he did not speak for the government. Whenever he mentioned his father, he spoke reverently. But Kim Jong-nam's fear seemed most palpable whenever he mentioned his little brother. Komi could tell that Jong-nam was measuring his words. The North Korean people, who only have access to such propaganda in their life, are not likely to find out how things really are. But it would really hurt me if the entire world comes to look at my brother as a villain. I hope that my brother will become a leader who is renowned among the people of the same race for his virtues. The journalist and the prince would exchange messages for 12 weeks. And in that time, Komi not only got Kim Jong-nam to open up, he got him to agree to a face-to-face, on-the-record interview. On January 13th, 2011, Komi arrived in Macau to meet the eldest son of North Korea's dictator. Komi arrived with his wife, hoping that traveling in tandem would help him blend in with tourists. You know, look a little less suspicious. Waiting in a hotel lobby, Komi scanned the door, waiting for the prince to enter. Then, a man wearing a black jacket walked in his face obscured by sunglasses. It was Kim Jong-nam. The men sat down, made idle chit-chat, and Komi turned on his trusty voice recorder. Then, on the record, Kim Jong-nam opened up. He repeated his opposition to a third-generation dynasty, arguing again that, until recently, his father had been opposed to the idea as well. He again blamed the power elite for North Korea's problems. He even blasted his father's recent attempt at currency reform, calling it a failure. He advocated for change and name-dropped his reformist uncle. 
I think the country is trapped in a dilemma. While it is obvious that its economy will collapse if it does not carry out reform, reform could also trigger a collapse of the regime. I would expect time will pass away as the country remains in this state of affairs. From what I have heard under Mr. Chang Sung-tech's leadership, North Korea seriously considered introducing Chinese-style reform and liberalization. At the end of the conversation, Komi asked permission to put everything the two had talked about in an article. Kim Jong-nam approved. Komi published it right away. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For North Koreans, it's risky to say or publish anything remotely critical about their country, especially if you've abandoned the regime. Nobody would know that better than Kim Jong-nam's own family. You probably recall that two of his cousins and his aunt all published tell-all memoirs. One of them would be shot dead. The others remain in hiding to this day. And Kim Jong-nam clearly already had enemies in the regime long before he began talking to Yojigomi. In 2004, Kim Jong-nam had been visiting Vienna, Austria. There, security officials purportedly received a tip about a plot 
to kill him. According to a source, quote, the attempt was made by anti-Kim groups in North Korea. Others, however, suggest that it could have come from the first family itself. Whoever it was, the plan was mysteriously thwarted. Then, in April of 2009, a secret police unit stormed into the Pyongyang villa that Kim Jong-nam used when visiting North Korea. It's where the firstborn son liked to party and entertain. And when the cops showed up, everyone in the building was taken away, presumably to the mountains. But Kim Jong-nam wasn't there that day. Kim Jong-nam was becoming paranoid. He began using an old Nokia phone that couldn't be tracked. He covered the cameras on his laptop with tape. According to the owner of a restaurant that Kim Jong-nam often visited, the elder prince must have carried a device that jammed security cameras because whenever he came to eat, the CCTV would malfunction. Rumors began swirling that by the late 2000s, the Chinese government was offering Kim Jong-nam his own security detail with 24-hour protection and monitoring. It's this last measure that's prompted a slew of conspiracy theories. Did China consider Kim Jong-nam as a potential leader? China's number one consideration when it comes to the Korean Peninsula is stability. They do not want a catastrophic collapse of North Korea on its fragile northeastern border. So everything they do is with that in mind. There had been signs for many years that they had been cultivating Kim Jong-nam and kind of keeping him in reserve in case they needed to install a a China-friendly new leader of North Korea. Why Kim Jong-nam and not his uncle, Chang Sung-tek, the country's number two? Because he comes from the Kim family. He has that mythical Pekdu blood coursing through his veins. So it's something that could be easily sold to the North Korean people. But nobody is certain if China was protecting Kim Jong-nam because he was a fallback option. It's possible that his father was, in fact, paying for the security detail. But soon, his father would be out of the picture. And that's when everything changed. After his interview with Kim Jong-nam, Komi watched his email for some kind of acknowledgement from his subject. It had only been a few days since the article came out, but the silence of his inbox made him anxious. Had the flood of friendly messages stopped? Then... Good evening. The stories printed in the Tokyo Shimbun on the 28th of last month and the 2nd of this month may have aggravated North Korea. I received a sort of warning from them. Please hold off on publishing all other articles for the time being. I hope you understand. In another, more ominous email, he followed up. I just have to be careful and patient. The exchanges would continue. But Kim Jong-nam's sprawling tirades against the regime transformed into terse one or two sentence replies. So Komi changed his tactics. The men found other things to talk about. When a tsunami struck Japan in 2011, destroying the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, Kim Jong-nam sent a message of sympathy. 
I'd like to express my deepest condolences to the disaster victims in your country. The middle-aged men went on to complain to each other about gout and beer bloat. They talked about the risks of nuclear power plants, Fukushima still weighing heavily on their minds, with Cheongnam opining, We must protect the planet's ecosystem. After a month of idle chit-chat, the conversation swung back to North Korea, with Kim Jong-nam opening up about his relationship with his father. The media paints my father as a fearful dictator. I feel quite bitter about this. Apart from the fact that he's ahead of a nation, I only remember him as a very affectionate person, though he was sometimes strict. Week by week, Kim Jong-nam became more of his old self again. It's unclear if the threats had ended, or if he called their bluff, or if he simply let his guard down. Regardless, he went on to express dangerous criticisms that would get most people thrown in a gulag. Or worse, killed. He called himself a capitalistic young man and talked about how he had betrayed his father's expectations. He contemplated a future where his brother remained just as stubborn as his father. If my brother is against the idea of reforms and liberalization, I would like to question his thoughts and plans for the future of North Korea. Komi kept the conversation moving. But he wasn't satisfied with emails. He wanted another face-to-face meeting. And after months of cajoling, he convinced Kim Jong-nam to agree to a second interview in Beijing. But this time would be different. Komi and Kim Jong-nam never set a time or date. So Komi arrived in China and patiently waited for directions from his subject. One day passed. Nothing. Then another. Still nothing. Komi sent email after frantic email, but received no replies. Komi thought he was being stood up by a North Korean prince. On the day before his return flight, a disappointed Komi gave up. He decided to visit some friends and go out to dinner. He ate seafood and drank wine. He laughed and tried for a few hours to forget about the meeting and the big story he had just lost. And then, at 10 p.m., he looked at his phone. There were five missed calls, all from a Macau area code. Comey's heart raced. He called the number back but could barely hear. The noise was distorted. It sounded like there was a crowd in the background, but he could recognize the faint voice on the other line. It was Kim Jong-nam, and he wanted to meet. Komi jotted down the address. It was for a swanky Beijing hotel. He grabbed his coat and his bag, rushed out of the restaurant, and dove into a taxi. At one in the morning, he hurried into the hotel, entered an extravagant elevator, and pressed the button for the top floor. When he stepped off, he entered a world of luxury and opulence, a room with high ceilings, deep mahogany fixtures, and gilded details. The kind of place where bartenders in tuxedos serve fine liquors to elegantly dressed patrons who all spoke in hushed tones. At the corner of the bar, amid all this wealth, sat a man in a baseball cap. 
It was Kim Jong-nam. Why, hello. You made it after all. Homi doesn't recall how long the two talked. He never recorded what they said. The two men did not speak as journalists and subjects. They talked off the record. This time, as friends. According to Komi, Kim Jong-nam ordered glass after glass of high-end whiskey. Each time, he pulled out a pocket full of 100 yuan notes and paid the waiter. As the night wore on, Kim Jong-nam turned solemn. He cradled his glass and stared forlornly at the amber liquid. Do you think things will be different? Nothing will change. It's impossible to make change happen. He reached again into his pocket. Money spilled onto the floor. Kim Jong-nam looked at it for a moment and let it sit. He never picked it up. For the next seven months, Kim Jong-nam and Yoji Komi kept emailing. And in December of 2011, the dear leader, Kim Jong-il, would die. A few days later, Komi offered his condolences and asked if he could turn their emails into a book. He promised not to publish anything inflammatory. But Kim Jong-nam hesitated. We remain in mourning for 100 days in North Korea. It will not be advantageous for me if any new information comes out during that period. Please understand. The North Korean regime might attempt to inflict something to put me in harm's way. But even though he knew he was at risk, Kim Jong-nam couldn't resist getting something off his chest. As a matter of common sense, a power transfer to the third generation is utterly unacceptable. How can a young successor with only two years of grooming take over a system of absolute power that has sustained for the last 37 years? I suspect the power elites that have ruled the country will continue to be in control while upholding the young successor as a mere figurehead. I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot of fiction writing or rumors about me as well as what may or may not happen to North Korea's future. I wish you and your family's good health. Respectfully, Kim Jong-nam. It's unclear if Komi would ever hear from Kim Jong-nam again. All we know is that he did what any journalist would do. He published. And soon, Kim Jong-nam would be writing letters to his brother, asking him to please spare his life. On the next Big Brother, the theories about what killed Kim Jong-nam get complicated by money, technology, and a beloved relative who becomes a canary in the coal mine for the exiled prince. Big Brother is a production of School of Humans and iHeartRadio and hosted by me, Eden Lee. Lucas Riley is our writer, co-director, and associate producer. Amelia Brock is our senior producer, co-director, and editor. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Our fact checker is Aaron Blakemore. 
Music composed by Jason Todd Shannon and Tunewalders. Original score mixed by Vic Stafford. The bar scene piano rendition of the Big Brother theme song was performed by Lucas Riley. Audio editing by Jesse Nyswanger. Sound design and mix by Harper W. Harris. Audio correction by Josh Fisher. Voice acting by Mark Chung, Sean McKeague, Mike Coscarelli, KT Wong, Jason Todd Shannon, and Amelia Brock. Special thanks to Ryan Murdoch and Will Pearson. Sound licensed from the Associated Press. A special acknowledgement to the reporting of Yoji Komi and his 2012 book, My Father Kim Jong-il and I, published by Punge Sunju. If you're enjoying the podcast, help us get the word out by leaving a rating in your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I'm Eden Lee. School of Humans. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.